This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones. And he was a ball of fun. I mean, if you were around him, apparently. I mean, I I heard all the stories, you know, from the families that knew him, and they, they loved having him for dinner because he was such a hoot. But he was also very intelligent. I mean, you know, he spoke, I think, five languages, and mm-hmm. I think he was interested in history. Uh, well, who wouldn't be if you grew up in Sicily? Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewelry, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewelry editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Today we're talking about the life and work of a master jeweller, Fulco de Vidura, the Sicilian Duke, who was born in 1898. He showed a precocious talent for drawing and a curiosity about the natural world. He lived in his family's ancestral home in Palermo in Sicily and moved to Paris where he hoped to be a painter. But his true vocation was revealed once he began designing jewellery for Coco Chanel. Now, there's no one better to talk about Vajura with than Ward Landrigan, who I'm very pleased is in the UK from New York, who has owned Vajura. He bought it after Foucault's death and has been recreating jewellery from some of his, well, some of about 10,000 drawings in the archive um, since the mid-80s. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ward. Ward, I'm so happy you did a detour on your vacation in London to come and talk to If Jules Could Talk. Yes, well, I'm delighted, number one, to be in London, number two, to see you in your 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 digs. It's just <laughs> being in London is always a treat. And I, I, well, I came here in 1963 as a student and uh, I'd never been to Europe. And my first cab ride, the cab, I didn't understand the money because that was when it was pence and all that. And the cab driver knew I was hopeless. So he, he got out of the cab and put all the coins out on the bonnet to teach me the English English money. And I was like, oh my God, I was just, will I ever survive? But it's nice to be here, always nice to be here. I think you were about, what, 24, 25 years old when you first saw a piece of the Dura. You were head of jewellery at Sotheby's in New York. What was it that attracted you to his work the first time you saw it? Well, it seemed strangely familiar. And the reason for that is that I had worked for a jeweler when I was a boy. When I was 14, I started working for the local jeweler in New Jersey. And we sold mostly costume jewelry and mostly Tafari. And Tafari copied Verdura. So I, I knew the designs. I just didn't know that they were ever made in real. So at the minute I saw these pieces, I thought, gee, this looks familiar. The first sale I did that it had, it was Helena Rubinstein. That was 1965, I guess. And I actually was quoted in the New York Times. I mean, me quoted in the New York Times. I couldn't believe it, saying something about Helena Rubinstein. Was it a great collection? Yeah, it was. It was was very odd. I mean, it was, you know, oversized things. You know, she was sort of, I did meet her. She used to come into the gallery she was very short, very erect, and the first time I met her, she had on a, a white ermine coat. 
that came to the floor. She, <laughs> she sort of looked like a fire hydrant draped in fur. Anyway, uh, but she had, did have really interesting jewelry. The second sale, it was a sale from Kentucky, and it was the sale of a woman who had, she, she had been a showgirl, and she married a man in 1910, I think, or 1920, who had made his money in the gold rush. He was uh, Turkish. And he, you know, as he got older, he used to like showgirls. Anyway, she lived forever, and then she died in the 60s, and we sold her jewelry, and she had Verdura. You know, it, it, it was the, the interesting people, and then, you know, the clients that came in, Jackie So, Kennedy, but what was it about the actual the jewelry, jewelry that stood out for you? Well, it was bold. I liked the idea that it, I mean, me personally liked the idea it wasn't only about precious stones, because I, I mean, quite quickly I saw the difference between I'm showing off my money and I'm showing off me, because I look better in this, whatever it is. And really the most interesting women, the most impressive women had, had that jewelry. It was almost like a club and they all knew each other. And so who were the women? Well, that's a... Well, a long list of the oh, most yeah. stylish, yeah. the most wealthy, I imagine. Well, yeah, they had money, of course. That was, they had that in common, of course, but, um, but like Slim Keith, you know, she was, when she was at her, in her heyday, when she was married to, before Leland Howard, I can't remember. Anyway, she had all these husbands, but she was so good looking and so chic. Babe um, Paley. Babe Paley Jackie was one. Onassis. Jackie Onassis. Um, Diana Vreeland. Oh, Diana Vreeland. Well, actually, she used to come in and borrow things. <laughs> she was a trip. Well, she'd style, I mean, I'd give her a necklace and she'd you show it in somebody's hair or something. I mean, it didn't matter, baby. She did what she wanted to do. And she'd ask you a question and then she'd answer it anyway. But I, I mean, this was in the 60s, so... A lot of jewelry that had been bought in the 30s and 40s were coming, as they say, to fruition then. And I was lucky enough to see it. I, you know, I, I came from a background that was very uninformed about society. I was basically a blue-collar family, so I didn't know any of these people. But I was, I guess, impressed even. But they had a sort of ease about them. You know, they were comfortable being who they were, and they wore this jewelry really well. And movie stars, and, you know, it was like, you know, Barbara Streisand and... All kinds of people came in. It was quite something. So it was sort of partly your interest was piqued by the stylish nature of these women and how they wore this jewellery. Partly that the, the unusual nature, that he was doing something completely different at that moment when people were wanting... They were Most of jewellers were working with white metal, white That's diamonds. Right. Right. He was using unusual semi-precious stones, colour, a lot of yellow gold that people weren't using. And yellow gold in a way that sort of harked back to the great Italian traditions of filigree, baroque, right. um, rope work. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, I learned about that as I was handling it because I didn't, I didn't know a whole lot about jewellery history. I just knew I could identify a ruby, emerald, diamond, sapphire. But I quite soon came to realize that he was very different. I mean, and he, uh, you know, as you said, the jewelry, a lot of it was white metal with precious stones. His was more about form, and he was very conscious of how it looked on the body. You know, he thought, I think he thought earrings were probably the single most important thing, because when you look at someone, the first thing you look at is their eyes. And then you look down the face, scan the ear, round the chin and up to the nose, and keep scanning, because that's how we remember who people are. 
and you see the you see the earrings. And he was very, very influenced by his heritage from Sicily. Oh yes. And I was very lucky to go with him oh, many years ago. I cannot believe. To that. when was that? I think it was probably twenty years ago or more. No, it was oh, more it because more I wasn't at Vogue. I was then working at Tatler. Well, my son is forty-two, and he was a little boy. Oh my God! Don't say that. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah. And we went to the Villa Nishemi, yes. um, which is where um, Fulco Verdura was brought up as a young aristocrat. He's a, he's a Sicilian duke. Yes. And had this very um, noble, long ancestral heritage and grew up in this palace, really, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, what, I mean, we learned about his childhood from his book, Happy Summer Days, but it only covered his first 13 years at, at Villa Nishemi because um, that's when he moved out after his grandmother died. But it's the most uh, amazing place, and it has beautiful gardens. And s- we're going to talk about some of some of the designs later on, but so much came from those 13 years that he lived there. Yes, they did. Every square inch, the walls, the ceiling, the floors are decorated with uh, putti and shields and palm trees and camels and everything you can think of. So innate Baroque carvings. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, that's where he grew up. That was his home. He and his sister used to roller skate around because it had marble floors. I mean, you could really zoom. I mean, they lived... Obviously, very eccentric life, but maybe all Sicilian aristocrats were eccentric. Supposedly, if you read The Leopard, it was written by his first cousin, Duke de Lampedusa. It gives you a, an insight into the world that Foucault grew up in, a very good one uh, in terms of politics, but also how people lived. The fading grandeur yes. of those that era. They were sort of handing over the aristocracy to a younger generation of different classes. Yes. It was that sort of moment it, of change. It, it was. Apparently, when the king died, Foucault wore a black armband for two years. He was he was a real royalist, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And the gardens you mentioned were, you know, the, with Monte Pellegrino in the background, they were the royal gardens. His house or palace backed up on it, you know, so he had access. It, I mean, he must have had a charmed life. And the colours, the pink of the mountains behind, the Everything. flowers of Bougainvillea, incredibly it, it was colourful. Lush. Yeah, it wasn't tropical because it was so dry, but it was incredibly beautiful. And and he was a, he was an aesthetically aware young boy. I mean, he was he was somebody who took it in. Even his camel, he met when he was in. He went to Paris years later, and he was in the in the Tuileries, and there was a circus. And his camel's name was Momo, and he recognized Momo, and Momo recognized him, and they had a they had a love in in the Tuileries after you know after, but not every kid had a camel. And he made a Momo into a into a jewel. Oh yes, and I think it went to one of the uh, Jordanian royal family ultimately. I mean that was the other thing. I guess it took me a while to figure it out that a lot of the jewelry he made that we were talking about, whether it was in gold or colored stones. He made for a particular person, very often for an occasion. And to my way of thinking, jewelry was made and then sold to somebody. But you would come in and meet him if he would meet you. And apparently he didn't want to meet everybody. Uh, his line, if he didn't want to meet you, he'd say to his assistant, tell him I'm dead. Anyway, he, uh, he, would, he would look at you. And if you had a round face, he probably wouldn't suggest round earrings because it makes your face look rounder. And if you had a long face, you shouldn't wear long pendant earrings, because then you're sort of horse-faced. And then your hair, I mean, how you wear your hair dictates the earrings and the color of your eyes. So most of the jewelry, at least in his early days, I mean, he was making it originally for Chanel. 
Yes. So, and she wore it. And I mean, what a lucky thing for him. So he basically had this artistic talent from quite a young age. Yes. Um, and he could draw. He could always draw. And he could draw. And I loved it in um, Patricia Corbett's book that I read, that when he was growing up, she asked the tutor how he was getting on academically. And she replied, Senora, he's not intelligent. He's vivacious. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, this was his artistic yeah. nature. And he couldn't sit still. Mm. I mean, he was, uh, and he was a ball of fun. I mean, if you were around him, apparently, I mean, I, I heard all the stories, you know, from the families that knew him and they, they loved having him for dinner because he was such a hoot. But he was also very intelligent. I mean, you know, he spoke, I think, five languages and mm-hmm. I think he was interested in history. Uh, well, who wouldn't be if you grew up in Sicily, which is the intersection of every culture. In the... Every culture, every civilization's left its imprint on the island, haven't they? And it's wonderful. I mean, I had never been to Sicily, so it was really... It's the grandeur. It's the grandeur of the architecture, yeah. isn't well, it? Well, I think Palermo is the biggest Baroque city. It's basically still unrestored. You know, there are trees growing out of some of the wonderful old houses. But Villa Vedrura got the big one on the sea, got bombed during the war. So first of all, he leaves this idyllic childhood because the family are running out of money and he realises he's got to actually get a job. And he meets Cole and Linda Porter. Yes, they met in 1919. Uh, Cole and Linda went on their honeymoon to Palermo. And, and apparently Palermo at that time was sort of like the south of France. It was, you know, the Kaiser went there, the Tsar went there. I mean, the royals would go there because it was a beautiful spot. He met them, I don't know under the circumstances, but they liked him and he was obviously a young, attractive man. He and Cole hit it off and, and they invited him to a party in 1925 in, in Venice. They had rented Palazzo Rizzonico, which is now that wonderful palace, which is actually now it's a museum. But they rented that and, you know, gave one of these parties where 100 people came and spent four days. And he and Chanel became friends. That's when they got to know each other, apparently. And he and she liked each other. And she invited him to come to Paris. And, and encouraged him to make, try and make a living out of this talent of drawing. Yeah, she, the original idea she had was that he could design textiles, which he did. But Chanel decided that, didn't yes, she? Yes, yes. Chanel. Because Chanel was just buying a textile mill. She wanted to sort of control her production. That's everything, she, from A-, A to Z. So he was to design textiles, but they became friends. And her jewelry was given to her by her lovers, and I guess she bought some too. I think he probably <laughs> made a comment that it didn't suit her. You know, I mean, she was so out with her new new look and the clothes and the bobbed hair. Because she just, she was at the peak of her career, wasn't she? Absolutely. She just created the little black dress. Absolutely. She had jewels from Grand Duke. Dimitri of Russia, right. the Duke of Westminster. Yeah, come on. I mean, she had jewels, amazing jewels, yeah. rubies, yeah. emeralds. Yeah, the whole thing. But she wanted to wear them with fakes. The fake had a, a pizzazz that the jewelry that she had didn't. And I think Fulco, with his background, knew the Byzantine look, you know, the gold with the colored stones. So basically what he did was take the colored stones out of her precious white metal jewelry and press it, he said, like into wax but it was actually gold he was pressing it into. And it it had a totally different look. And that's, I think, probably when he created the cuffs that she wore all the time. The famous Maltese cross. The famous Maltese cross, cuffs. And and people said, why Maltese? Well, I mean, Malta's 90 miles from the south coast of Sicily, so it's quite obvious that they would have that. And these were wide enamel cuffs with the Maltese cross. Two two and a half inch Mm. wide and one on each wrist. Mm. It was quite a... I mean, they had had cuffs 
pots in the ancient times, and they'd also had them in Victorian times, but they weren't like this. This was some. This was a bold fashion statement, and it caught on. Well, especially if you had Chanel for your model. And she wore them in all the major portraits of her, with Man Ray, with Horst, with Beaton. She wears those cuffs, doesn't yeah, she? They obviously meant a lot to her because they did a photo shoot of her in 37, and Foucault was then living in either Hollywood or New York, I don't remember which, but she wanted him back for this photo shoot of her with the cuffs. And they did a whole series of her wearing the cuffs and Foucault looking at them, holding them. They stayed friends, which apparently was unusual, because if you didn't stay with her, you didn't always stay friends with her. He found her scary, didn't he? Was... No, he didn't say scary. We have him on tape talking about her. He said mm. she was the, quote, chicest woman I ever met. He said she had a face like a samurai mask. That was a quote. But he really liked her. I mean, he mm -hmm. really, really liked her. And I gather she really liked him. And I'm wondering, because so much of what she said about jewellery is what I think Foucault then did with his jewellery. And I wonder... If he influenced her yeah. or the other way around? That's a really good, you know, we'll never know. She said the point of jewellery is to adorn a woman and not make her look rich. Yeah. Jewellery shouldn't be meagre. All this is what yeah. Foucault did. Yeah, well, I don't know if he took what she said uh, and made it happen or whether he made it happen and she said it. I don't know which one came around first. But when you think about the costume jewelry, I think that was sort of the ultimate statement of, I don't care what you think about what I paid for this. You know, this is plastic. This is gold and diamonds and, you know, so what? I look great. You know, my earrings are fake, but so what? They make my face look good. So I, I think that was an attitude towards money or what jewelry meant. I, I still think there are a group of people that wear jewelry to show off money. You know, my diamond is bigger than your diamond, which is tedious. Yes. You know, you have something because you like it and it's beautiful and it looks good on you or you, you love it because your husband gave it to you. And as I said, he made things for an occasion. And beautiful, exquisite objects. Beautiful objects. Yeah, they were. Yeah. I mean, really amazing. I was reading about one the other day that was a cigarette holder and the, the tip was in pink quartz oh. to mimic the effect of a lipstick okay. on the end of a filter. Oh. And I thought that's kind of worth taking up smoking for. Yeah. I mean, it's if almost you could surreal use in a way. Yes. I mean, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, he had a great sense of humor. I mean, he was, he was famous for his sense of humor. And I think a lot of his jewelry has humor in it. I mean, it's not what we've been talking about, this kind of jewelry that's bold and colorful. It's not just funny, but it's, it's not necessarily so serious either. It's not about money. It's about how you look. It's about style. It's about, and that's why I think so many of the women that I was meeting back in the 60s were the stylish women of the time. Mm. I mean, they were. So it's a combination too of um, the style, and, but also the design. And although the design has humor and lightheartedness and beauty, it's also underpinned by a sort of classicism because yes. he was an art historian, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Actually, that's a really good point because the general consensus is he was sort of a playboy who made jewelry, but he was really a scholar. And his classical background and understanding of classicism is what you see in the jewelry. I think he was much more important than people give him credit for. And I think the reason for that is he was such a character and a bon vivant and knew everybody. But when he traveled with Chanel, yes. I mean, they would you know, go to cathedrals, they'd go to see church ornaments, yeah. they'd go to museums. I mean, they would go on these expeditions of learning. They were both curious people. It's written up in Vogue, actually. I think it was 1928, he gave this huge party 
in uh, Palermo. In Palermo. And Chanel went and uh, the Vogue covered it. Well, he loved dressing up. The theme, who was under the volcano? Uh, Nelson and yeah, Nelson. Hamilton. Yes, yes, yes. And he went as Napoleon, which was, of course, sort of up yours mm. uh, to the whole thing. Anyway, I mean, that was, that was who the man was. And that put him on the map, didn't it? That kind of put him, sort of catapulted him into the kind of fashion, fashionable world. Well, he invited the world and they all showed up. It was a hell of a party. When did he have time to work then? Well, that was my question. <laughs> In fact, he was really a serious jeweler. He and, really was. Well, when I bought the archive in 19... End of 84, early 85, there were 10,000 drawings by him. And I, we reckon he made maybe half of them, probably closer to a third in his lifetime. And that was, you know, because what he'd do is show, he'd make two drawings and show you, and you'd say, oh, I like the, this one. And then his partner kept the, all the drawings. When I got it, it was in the, in the garbage bags mm-hmm. because they hadn't put them in books or anything. It took us three years to sort through, you know, separate, you know, earrings from brooches. So his business partner or Tom Parr? No, 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 not, not Tom Parr, not his Tom, business partner. His business partner. Yeah. Oh, my God, thank goodness you got hold of it. Well, yeah, they were going to chuck it like everything else. Anyone listening who's in jewelry, keep your archive. It's your heritage. It's yeah. what's important. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I mean, when I, I fell in love with the idea, I mean, I was leaving Sotheby's, I had been there eight years, and, you know, what am I going to do? I had just read an article in Connoisseur magazine about Verdura retiring, and I thought, ooh, this could be interesting, because nobody knew the name. Mm-hmm. And I figured it wouldn't be, you know, it wasn't like buying a big name. And I got in touch with Alfano, who was his partner, and he said, no, 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 I, I don't want to sell it. I'd like to run it for a few years myself. And he did, but I kept at him. I mean, I never let the poor guy sleep. And finally, he threw a friend who was a Japanese friend, um, called me and said, I think Joe's ready to sell it. And it was just you you saw something there that was extraordinary. Yeah. I, I, I saw, by that time, I, I was more, a little more mature than I had been at Sotheby's. It, it took 11 years for Joe to come around. I, I mean, the first time I went in there, his Joe's secretary was 82. I mean, that said something about the company. It was just Joe, his wife, and the secretary. It was like a tomb. It was really, you know, and the clients, Joe had, didn't have money. And he couldn't do what Fulco had done. How old was Fulco when he died? 79. And had it been winding down for a bit? Well, he sold the company and he sold it to Joe in 71, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. I think that was 70 or 71 is the official retirement date. And then he moved to London to be with Tom. And did he make money out of it in the meantime? No. Not much. No, no, no. no. I don't think he ever made much money. Mm. He lived very modestly in in New York. Ate at parties, free food. Yeah, the whole thing. (laughs) No, but he was, he was, he knew everybody. He was, Mm. you know, if he'd stay with the, all the grandees, he, you know, he was on the, Agnelli's yacht. He'd be on the yacht for a month, you know, and then he'd get off and stay with somebody else. And the other thing he did was he was a great artist and he did paint. Yeah, most people don't know that. And I started collecting them just because I was, you know, everything Foucault was fascinating to me. Plus, they were inexpensive when I started. I have 42 or something. No. Yeah, I do. Well, I thought they were charming. They are charming. Mostly two and a half. They're like little painted jewel paintings, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And he actually, he took his painting quite seriously, although 
like everything else, nobody else really knew what he was up to. But he was uh, in New York. He was represented by uh, Iolas, I O L A S, which is what was one of the great galleries. They'd always sell right out because they were one weren't expensive, but two they were charming. Mm. Everybody had them. Everybody had these things. They were they keep popping up all over the place. So you cornered the market in that? No, <laughs> no, 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 not really. But. So now in 1936, Vogue talked about the most talked of bauble of the year. And that was one of the cigarette cases that he designed for Cole Porter. Because right. will you tell us that story, Ward? Because uh, he did one for all of Cole Porter's openings, Yeah, the opening he? night of every play and every any movie, he would design a box for Cole Porter, given to him by Linda, supposedly. And then after Linda died, his friends got together and kept doing it. But it was uh, it started in the 20s before Foucault had a company. The first boxes were by Cartier. And then this most talked about bauble, <laughs> to digress even more than I usually do, I had a call in 1966, maybe 67, from the Museum of Performing Arts in New York, which was part of Lincoln Center. It was a director, and he said, we have this amazing collection of boxes many of them set with precious jewels, but we don't have the security to keep them. They were given to us by MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, and Cole Porter had left them to them. So he said, we're gonna sell them. I thought, what a horrible thought. Anyway, so I went over there and uh, there were 60 boxes, I think, all over the tables. Anyway, the most talked about bauble was one he did in 1936 for a Broadway play called Red Hot and Blue, starring Ethel Merman, and I can't remember who else. And the box itself was platinum. It was about three and a half to four inches by three inches. And one half of it was pave rubies. The other half was pave sapphire, so hot and blue. And in the middle of it was a huge sunburst and diamonds. And the clever thing was the sunburst came out so you could wear it as a brooch. But it, it was featured in Life magazine because no one had ever seen anything like it, especially modern. I was the auctioneer for all 60 boxes. And they, they, they went all over the world. Frank Sinatra bought the box for Philadelphia Story. One of the Koch brothers bought it, the uh, Kiss Me Kate box because his mother's name was Catherine and they called her Kate. So everybody had a reason to buy these things or everybody had some reason. But they sold like boom. And they were all gone, and it was so sad because it would have been one of the great... One collect great yeah. collection. And, and sadly, I knew the man that bought the uh, Red Hot and Blue box. He ripped it apart for the stones. No. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, that was, the, like you say, save your archives. It just don't destroy things because that was, that was criminal because that box was spectacular. Have you ever seen any of these come back on the market? Yes, I did a show and was offered a couple. I found one on eBay, but not not many. I mean, very few. I, I've, I've acquired a couple over the years, maybe three or four. At that time, people were putting B-Blow and things out on tables, hmm. and they were getting stolen. Mm-hmm. So I, I did talk to two people who had had their box swiped, and mm-hmm. they never knew where it went after that. But anyway, it was a piece of history, and it was it was a shame that they sold it, but that was the story. What date did um, Fulco eventually open his own store 19, in New York? Thir- 1939. And that was on Fifth Avenue? It was on Fifth Avenue. It was in the building. Actually, he opened in the office that was originally the, the first Cartier store. And he did that because... He had been briefly in Hollywood, but he figured that all the women in Hollywood wanted jewellery that had come from New York. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. Well, he'd gone out to work for Paul Flato in, mm-hmm. in Hollywood. There was a sort of clique of foreigners, 
and he got to know them. He knew lots of the movie stars. You know, they liked him, and they were glamorous, but they referred their friends and all that. And yes, he became... I think he was almost an instant success, because Salvador Dali got in touch with him right away and suggested that Fulco and he collaborate on the collection of jewelry. Dali was very good at self-promotion. I mean, that was his... That's how, you know, he was a showman. And Fulco was certainly not shrinking violet, so... Uh, they came up with this collection of jewels that they showed first at MoMA, and then they traveled around, actually, the eight best museums in America. Every major museum you could name, they went, and then they were basically bought by one woman, the whole collection. And these were surreal, I mean, really weird, Dali-esque things that Verdura would create part of it in jewelry, and then Dali would paint something. So Dali's designs that he was creating, no, no both... I think, I, honestly, I think they were Verdura's. A lot of them were Verdura's designs. I think it was collaborative, I mean, based on looking at them, because uh, there's humor there, too. So what's the most surreal one? It's Medusa's head. Well, this, this one probably was a Dolly creation in terms of the face. Dolly painted a horrible face of Medusa, and it's maybe an inch by two inches, something like that. And then Verdura took a clear stone, probably uh, some kind of crystal, and mounted it upside down on the face and then put it in a gold frame with like 15 or 20 snakes coming out the top of the Medusa head mm. with little ruby eyes. And as you take the brooch or if you move, the facets of the stone make it look like the face is winking at you. <laughs> it's really quite a trip. It's, it's, it is surreal, but it's, it's quite wonderful. I was thinking for this conversation, I was thinking... Yes, and we'll talk about a couple of the iconic designs that he did. And then I thought, we can't do that. There are too many. <laughs> there really, are too many It's actually really funny when you say it. It is true. Because, I mean, you know, when you think of him, you think of, I mean, he was the first person to do those incredible stalks carrying a diamond in its mouth yeah. like a precious cargo yes, yes, yes. that you see now at other jewelry houses. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much everything he did, he did first. I mean Yeah, he the, was in, he was an innovator he because was he wasn't innovator. again he was he was having fun. I mean the big maple leaf uh, in the well, autumnal colours, the pine cones. Well he was thrilled when he first came to America. You know, they don't have colourful fall in Palermo. And when he got to New England and saw orange and pink and green trees. You know, he went wild. He made a whole series of these things. He was a great romantic. He made very romantic jewels, didn't he? I mean, I think of the heart. The heart. Tell that story about... It was uh, Tyrone Power. The actor. Who was an actor who was... Uh, I remember my, my parents, that generation, they said that Tyrone Power was better looking than any of his leading ladies because he really was quite beautiful. Anyway, he married a French woman. For Christmas, he commissioned a ruby heart wrapped in diamonds and gold with a bow on it. He said to Foucault, I guess what he said, he said, I want to give my heart gift wrapped to my wife. Can you make something? And that was what he came up with. It was a very romantic story, isn't it? Uh, Too yeah. bad the marriage didn't last, but it was a romantic yeah. no, it, thought it, yeah, at it, the time. Yeah, it didn't last very long. <laughs> no, it only lasted another year. She probably took the brooch and ran. Yeah. And I, I mean, I found it years later in Texas. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the other thing. Stuff's all over the world. We, we just recently found a piece made for Mrs. Astor back in the 40s at an auction in Australia. And how the heck did it get there? That's so interesting. But you don't know because yeah. the provenance in you know, the jewelry doesn't talk. Mm -hmm. There's so many great stories that 
never get told is the sad thing. I mean, partly because you can't tell. In you can write your memoirs. No, and tell that them would live. put my son out of business. Okay. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so now we did talk in depth a few weeks ago about the Duchess of Windsor and her jewellery collection. Yeah. And of course, she was a big client of Fulco's, yes, wasn't she? Was. she? Yeah. And in fact, Horst, the photographer, said that the Dura, he alone understood how to make her a duchess. Yes, I was amazed that he said that. He put I, her in the right jewels. Yeah, he knew how to dress her. He, I mean, he, she wasn't, he brought she, out that colour and the colour of her eyes. He the colour of her eyes, yeah. that, you know, she had blue eyes. I think he didn't like her very much. I think he, was, he, he rather liked the, the husband. Maybe he was good friends with the husband. I think they took a boat trip together somewhere. I think she had good taste. I mean, or she listened to people that helped her look good. And he didn't like her because she was, her perfectionism drove him mad when she was looking at pieces. I don't know. I don't know the story. I, he just, I just knew he didn't like her. And then, of course, he didn't like her because she went around saying one of his designs she had designed. That's, that's, that, was the, that, that was the kiss of death. That's right. One of, yeah, she did that. So that was a thistle, wasn't it? So she decided she was bored of the thistle and having run around dinner parties saying she designed it. Yeah. She then went back to Fulco to say, could she swap it for she something? She wanted to return it for something else. And then what did Fulco say to her? I think it was something like drop dead. <laughs> I, I don't think he, he didn't. It's no, recorded, he said, no, yes. He, there was something. He, you, you, it, you, it was recorded in one of the books that he said... Of course we'd exchange it. But unfortunately, we only exchange our own jewels. And I understand this is one of that, your designs. That's, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he, he was apparently very good at that kind of thing. So he, he would call a spade a spade. So he wasn't a great salesman. He didn't need to be a great salesman. No, because these good. women would flock to his store. And it was up to... He decided who'd come in and who yes, wouldn't he, come he in. Yes, he wouldn't see everybody. Most of the things he made were for people he knew or liked. So will you exhibit all these jewels in your museum? Are you going to have a show at some point? Well, we've had one show, and that mm -hmm. was uh, seven years ago, something like that. Yeah, I, what I would really like to do, I mean, I know there's a Tiffany show on now here at mm. the, the Saatchi Gallery. Um, the thing about Berdura's jewelry is it covers, it's not just about the jewelry, it's about who it was Social made history. Social yes. history. And some, I mean, some of the stories are amazing. Well, we hope you come and do it in London. We'd like you oh, to no, come no, and no, do no, the no, show no, in London. No, no, I'd love to do it in London. I'd love to do it in London. I think, I mean, certainly since Foucault was a real Anglophile. I mean, mm. he was, well, he lived here and, mm. and he loved London and he knew, he knew most of the grandees. Mm. What a time to know them too. Talking about Tiffany, I actually also read, and I'm not sure if this is true, that Cartier, at one point, were trying to do what Tiffany had done with Elsa Peretti, Jean Schlumberger, Paloma Picasso, and they wanted to start creating a stable of designers, and they approached Fulco. But see, I never heard that. You I haven't? Had, no, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm. I mean, it mm. was. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I know Belperon was approached by, mm -hmm. apparently, Tiffany to come, and, mm -hmm. and she, she wouldn't. He wouldn't have fitted into that corporate structure. Oh, my God. It would, <laughs> not for five minutes. He was not a corporate type. <laughs> so is there a favorite jewel? What do you think was his greatest jewel he created? That's a really tough question. I mean, really. Unfortunately, it's like, you know, the, uh, what's baby? your best icon? <laughs> There's so many. I mean, the, the one that appeals to me the most is one of the shells. It's, I found it in Paris, and it's a, it's a lion's paw. And it, there's a full-page picture of it in the book. I just, there's something about it. It's, it's Baroque. It's uber-Baroque. 
It's amazing. It's just the most amazing piece of jewelry. Non-traditional, that, that probably would be it. And then, I mean, I love the tiara because it's, it's beautifully made. And we, you know, the thing, I don't know if you knew that, the way the leaves are, not leaves, the feathers are made, they're beautifully, each one is etched and they're all different. And I always thought, well, wouldn't it be great to find, because they were obviously cast or handmade, and find the molds for them. And we did. I mean, we found them in someone's garage. And since then, we've been making uh, feather earrings and feathered bracelets because the feathers are so beautiful. But nobody would be bothered to make them that way today. I mean, it's just, it's like so many things. So time-consuming. Yeah. So do you think Fulco would be happy that you are conserving his work? I don't know if he'd be happy if I was doing it, but uh, I don't know. I tried to meet him and he didn't do it. Well, you never, you never met no, him? No, I never met him. I was, I mean, I was selling his, uh, the very first piece of Foucault I saw, I went to Dallas, Texas to do an appraisal for Lily Pons, who was an opera singer who became a movie star. And she was this little French woman and quite, I mean, totally charming. And, you know, I was as green as grass. I was my first out of, New York visit. You know, she said, well, I've prepared lunch. And da, da, da. So the maid brings in the lunch. And the first thing was aspic, which I thought was brown jello. I, I, you know, I'd never seen anything like it. Um, anyway, we made it through lunch. And then we went into the sitting room and she had this jewelry all spread out. And a lot of it was uh, Foucault's work. It was incredible. Anyway, so I had to say to her, I'd never heard of Verdura, which because I never had. And she said, well, when you get back to New York, Look in your safe. I promise you there's some there. And there was. And I actually own that piece now. I found it. I mean, it, 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 talk about goes around, comes around. It was a star, dark blue sapphire flower pot with emerald and I can't remember, ruby flowers or something coming out of it. And it came up for auction and I said, I have to have that. That was my very first piece of Verdura. So anyway. Started a, a, a lifetime love affair with Verdura. Yeah, well, he's also paid the rent for a lot of years. I mean, I, we, 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 we talk about Uncle Foucault. That's how we refer to him. Uncle Foucault pays the bill. Well, God, God bless him. Well, Ward, thank you very much for sharing, for sharing that history with us and You're those welcome. reminiscences. Thank well, you so fun. much. Always fun talking to you about anything, <laughs> but especially Foucault. Especially jewellery. Do listen through to the end to hear how Fulco liked to use and incorporate semi-precious stones into his work, in particular Peridot. Ward gave such a charming um, and detailed response to this that um, we didn't want to cut it. So please listen through to the end. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed. We're on any of the platforms where you find your podcasts and leave us a comment or rating or a star. And join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget when we are going to talk about one of the most timeless and priceless substance that's gripped our imaginations and desires for over 3,000 years. Gold. Um, I want to thank our sponsors, Fooley Gemstones. For more information about them, it's fooleygemstones.com. And see you again in two weeks. And thanks for listening. Bye. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan. Music and editing by Tim Thornton. Graphics by Scott Bentley. Illustration by Geordie Labanda. 
And you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. Ward, when you talked about his unusual use of semi-precious stones, I always think of that really unusual colour combination of, of bright pink and green. And he particularly used peridot quite a lot. And I think that was fairly unusual at the time. What do you think it was that he really drew him to peridot stones? That's a good question because you don't see peridot. It's not a common stone, but it's a wonderful stone. I think he was drawn to the color. It's a pastel green. It was also much more affordable than emeralds. And it had a wonderful history. Uh, it goes back to the Bible. It was around for, say, 3,500 years. It was first found, or at least the predominant source of emeralds back in ancient history was a small island off the coast of Egypt in the Red Sea. It is the official stone of Egypt, uh, the gemstone of Egypt, and it's believed that Cleopatra's emeralds were actually peridots. I also think that a reason it's not as popular as it might be is that it isn't considered one of the big ones, emerald, diamond, ruby, sapphire. Um, if a husband comes home with a peridot and says, honey, I got a peridot for you, I think the reaction might not be as exciting as if he told her he bought an emerald. It's also a stone that works well with other stones because of its pastel green. It it is um, it works well with pink. Verdura very often paired it with pink topaz and, and made some incredible jewelry um, in that combination. Another reference to them in, in history is they called them evening emeralds. I think the reason being that uh, emeralds in candlelight particularly turn dark and um, peridots continue to sparkle their, their wonderful bright um, yellow-green color. And as I said before, they are, are much more affordable. They also have the, the allure of occurring actually in outer space. In meteorites, you will find, if you go to the museum, uh, and a good source is Museum of Natural History in New York or the Museums of Science in, in London, that you will see uh, slices of meteorites that are lit from behind and in these slices of metal meteorites, uh, you'll see pieces of peridot. Uh, it looks like a stained glass window. In fact, in history, the, in historical times, these, these uh, pieces of peridot were actually cut out of the meteorites and faceted. Uh, it's the only stone um, that, that is found in, as it were, outer space that can be um, utilized for, for jewelry. Some time ago, not long after, well, probably 10 years after I bought Verdura, I was offered uh, by a European dealer a very, very large peridot. I think it was 60, 70 carats. And the story that came with it, although they're not always true, was um, that a family in Myanmar, Myanmar being uh, Burma, was, was the owner of this amazing gem and that they sold it eventually to put their son through school. Um, the dealer was German, and he brought the stone to me and showed me, and I, I eventually bought it and composed a necklace around it. And um, the necklace is absolutely amazing. It has 400-plus carats of peridots, 18 carats of yellow and white diamonds, and um, it's certainly a tour de force as far as peridot jewelry goes, and, and it was done really as an homage to uh, Foucault's love as peridots. I must say that uh, I love them too. They're the birthstone of August, so for those of you who are, have August birthdays, you might ask for a peridot.